With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the thing which I have been most excited about for about the past year which is Slate Money Extra, the succession recap mini-season of Monday morning Slate Money shows, where you have all, of course, stayed up watching Succession last night, because what else is there to do on a Sunday except for watching the greatest television show on TV right now? And we are going to just recap the entire episode and talk about what's going on with some of the most interesting people in media. I need to say this right up front. If you haven't seen episode one, don't listen to this show. Go and watch episode one. It's fabulous. And then you can listen to the show. All of these shows are going to be filled with spoilers for all of the episodes. So don't listen to this show unless and until you've watched the show. Now, I am, of course, Felix Salmon of Axios. I am joined by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post, who is also a succession stan. Hello. And for this first episode of this little mini-season, I cannot imagine anyone better to come on this show to join us than Ed Lee of the New York Times. Ahoy, ahoy. Ed, you have been covering all things media for decades. Forever and ever. Forever and ever. I I think Ed started somewhere in the 17th century. He knows (laughs) everything about everything. And most importantly, you've been... Just as obsessed about this show as anyone. I have been. I mean, I I watched the first season uh, as they aired, as they came out, and I, for the most part, liked it, but I definitely had some issues. I mean, when you cover an industry so uh, in-depth for so long, you're like, eh, that's kind of not right. Eh, That doesn't quite work. Were you worried that some of it wasn't quite verisimilitudinous enough? No, but that's the thing, is that I actually adore just how geeky it got about... (laughs) Finance and media and corporate takeovers. Capital stacks. Oh, absolutely. Like, this is kind of great. But then when you get it wrong, you're like, ah, why did you have to go do that now? Right? Like, it's almost better sometimes if they didn't quite go that deep because you're like, I mean, maybe I wouldn't be as interested, but that's. But, But yeah, so the thing which I was obsessed by more than anything else is like, who are these characters? Because everyone obviously sees Murdoch's. Oh, yeah. You know, there are two sons who are sort of like rivals there's the daughter who's kind of out of it but kind of not out of it there's but there's the, the older there's, there's the older the son who's thing. like who's sort of not really involved and in the family prudence, but kind of, right? that's prudence right yeah. but there's overlap with the redstones too the, yeah. the family that controls cbs and viacom where there had been a succession battle for so long it doesn't quite line up in terms of the structure with the kids because sherry redstone is really sort of the only sort of uh, biological heir apparent there was an older son brent who basically uh, Sumner bought him out, right? And so he lives in Colorado on a ranch, right? So that's, oh, so, 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 that's so that is Connor, kind of, right? It's sort of melding. It's a very smart sort of melange of like and all the I big have, powerful families. I know people who spent a lot of time working for 
the Dolan family, and they see a whole bunch of Dolans in here as well. Well, maybe before we get into the comparisons, we should just lay out who the characters are on the show. Okay, Emily, hit me. Tell me, who is Logan Roy? So Logan Roy is the patriarch. He is, like Edmund said, he is basically the Rupert Murdoch. He's, I think he's 85 years old when the series starts, and he has some kind of health episode. Is it a stroke or heart attack or something bad happens to him? And he has four children, the oldest, Connor, you know, from his first marriage, and then the three other ones, two boys, the two boys and a girl from the second marriage. And the two guys are called Kendall and um, what's the other one? Roman. Roman. Kendall and Roman and Shiv. Those are like the three heirs sort of battling for the company because and, Logan and Roy runs this company, ATN, which is like this massive media company. They have Royco um, Waystar. Well, no, that's ATN they, is the TV. The TV, network. but there's it's right, the right. parent Roy- company, Way- Waystar Royco, Thank that you. like it, yeah. it just again like how they geek out on little details like that. We're like, well, actually, there's this parent company called Waystar Royco, which is really clearly the yes. function of a merger between Royco, which right. is Roy's company, which Logan Roy's company, which he founded, which is the media company, and Waystar, which is clearly some kind of telecom thing that wound up right that he bought decades ago, right? Exactly. And and then, and then, of <laughs> exactly. course, one of the great subplots of the first season is they put, like, the fuck-up son, Roman, in charge of, like, a satellite launch, which is clearly part of the That was the great. Star. There, were, there was definitely sort of an Armando Iannucci flavor to that scene. Like, <laughs> so the show, I'm going to I'm gonna bring this in. Like, Jesse Armstrong, the showrunner, he had worked with Armando on uh, The Thick of It, In the Loop, which are these, these BBC or British series that are sort of these really clever, satirical takes on power and government and how things And, of course, work. Armando did Veep. And he did Veep, for which Jesse was a, a writer. He had written a, one or two episodes. And I have to say, like, if we're talking about the first episode here, there, there are definitely times... Like when Kendall, you know, turns around to his cousin Greg and goes, if my septum falls out, I'm going to make you eat my septum, <laughs> which, which is just pure V. This is this. Right. And this is you're talking about last night's episode, right? Yeah. The first episode, of the second season. There's a lot of great one liners in there. You can't. I mean, I, I have a whole list here in front of me. <laughs> so, you know, that is that that is definitely one of them. So before we get to the last night's episode, we should say at the end of last season, basically the son, Kendall Roy. He tries to take over his father's company and then gets himself into this Chappaquiddick scenario where he basically gets this young waiter killed in a car accident. And uh, his whole project of taking over his father's company goes completely sideways and he winds up weeping. His father basically gets him out of trouble. And um, and that's kind of where we leave off with Kendall Roy going from about to become you know, the man who took down his father to just this like broken, you know, just mess of a human being. The other thing which happened is all of this takes place at his sister's wedding. Yes, the worst, best wedding ever. It ended up being a great sort of finale (laughs) that way where like this brutal kind of leveraging that the dad does on his son, which is sort of like, wow, that's just so cold. You know, taking advantage of this accident, basically, to like... Get over on his son, who's been trying to take over the company. And that bleeds into the first episode. We see the, the the fallout from that. And so we open this season with Kendall, who is trying to break his drug habit in an Icelandic spa. And I honestly say, like, this is not just my favorite line of the episode i'm i have not seen the whole series yet but like i think it's my it's going to be my whole favorite line of the whole series i love this so much which is when kendall gets pulled out of his spa and is told to go on the television to try and fight this 
takeover bid that he instigated. And he <laughs> looks kind of blankly at this Icelandic apparatchik and he says, I meant to have a silica mud treatment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've only been here like 48 hours and uh, I'm meant to have a silica uh, mud treatment. Can I just... Uh, uh, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. It's not going to work. The fact that you picked up on that it was Iceland, I mean, what's great is that it doesn't, you don't, it doesn't say they're in Iceland. You don't know it. Only if you had ever been there would you know that this is Iceland. <laughs> Just the bleakness of it and the specific sort of setup of like being in that sauna in the middle of like a, this blank field. Right. Which is exactly how they do it over there. And also, I mean, just uh, to your point, Ed, about like the the little things on this being super researched, silica mud treatment. I actually looked it up. (laughs) Of course you did. (laughs) It it only exists in like the Blue Lagoon in Iceland. It apparently it is. Blue Lagoon silica is a white mud known for strengthening the skin barrier, skin renewal and deep cleansing. So I have actually been to the Blue Lagoon. And I've actually put this silica on my body, and it's great. It's brilliant. So I would totally, I get why he wants it. I guess I get why Kendall is like, I'm meant to have that, right? Can I still have that, please? He's so broken in this, really, the first few episodes. I don't want to spoil anything going forward, but it that sort of reckoning that happened at the finale really plays into the start of the season. And it works. It works really well, I think. it's a It's a really smart use where he's kind of, He's kind of on the sidelines, but still a factor. There are so many lines where other people are describing Kendall as just utterly broken. Um, Shiv calls him his sister a sweaty corpse. Tom Wamsgams, (laughs) her new husband, says he looks waxy like an unshaven candle, which is one of my favorite lines. At another point, he's called a dead man walking. His dad calls him Mr. Potato Head and my plastic adversary. Like He's just completely broken down. Like The sight of him dripping water being pulled out of that um what is it felix some kind of hot spring or something yeah um just dripping water in his white robe he's just like he's it's like he's not even a person he's he's a wet rat and this is in stark contrast to season one episode one which opens with him psyching himself up in the back of a car by listening to the beastie (laughs) boys (laughs) <laughs> as he's going in to try and like do some deal with some hotshot tech company. Right. And he's the man. He's like, you know, he's pumping himself up. And he's also clean at that point. And, you know, he's very proud of having, you know, conquered his drug addiction demons. But of course, they come back. I mean, my issue with that character, the way he sort of played out, at least in the first season, is that he it was so stark where he was so the man all of a sudden like, oh, what? I, I don't know what's happening next. And then, you know, my wife and I'm back on drugs and, you know, everything's falling <laughs> apart. He, I just wish there were moments where he tried to fight back a little bit more and it didn't quite happen. At least in this first the episode of the of, of the second season, you can you totally get why he's broken, right? You could see why he's just hollowed out, and it's kind of interesting that way. It's just really kind of wow, like this guy. This is this is what a dead man walking really looks like. So, so the the first mm-hmm. season did this really quite clever thing where they set it up in the opening episode of like Logan Roy has this stroke. The name of the show is Succession, which of his kids is going to take over from him. And then weirdly, you know, that entire plot line gets resolved in about episode four of season one. And then it starts getting interesting. And that was one of the things I loved about season one was that the thing that you thought would be the big driving plot line for the whole season is, you know, like the internecine fighting between the kids. 
did not actually become that driving plot line. In this season, again, what we wind up with is this kind of, what's that wonderful Hitchcockian word for? MacGuffin. It's a MacGuffin. That you get this wonderful MacGuffin introduced at the very beginning where Logan Roy is like, if I'm going to fight back, I'm going to have to name a successor. I'm like, why? Like, no, no one ever explains why he needs to name a successor in order to fight back. But I have a feeling this is also going to be one of those things that gets resolved by about season. By about well, I think I think there's more this idea that you want the, the season needs to propel. Right. So I think the idea of Logan Roy sort of dangling succession throughout the season, I think, is sort of a key driving force for like all the drama that takes place. I would say in this last night's episode, what was really, really smartly done was that whole setup around like, well, look, are you going to sell? Like the tech companies are coming after you. Like it really captures what's been happening with in the real world, what happened with Rupert Murdoch's company, 21st Century Fox, where he sold to Disney with all these other mergers that are happening. It's because of big tech coming in and kind of stealing your thunder. Okay. So Ed, this is why we invited you on the show. Because (laughs) you actually understand this stuff and you can explain it. There is this another line in the in the show where it's like tech has its hands round your throat says the banker to the patriarch. So can you explain what that means? And why, why is tech like an existential risk to media companies? So I, I think that scene that you're talking about really, really vividly captures the state of play, which is you're a big media company. That means you own movie studios and cable networks and maybe some broadcast networks, maybe some newspapers. We know what's happening in newspapers, right? No one's reading print. That's dying. TV, people are still watching, but not the way they used to. So there are fewer people paying a cable bill now, right? That cuts into... 21st Century Fox and Disney to some degree and a bunch of these other media guys. Why is that happening? Because everyone's on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and doing that thing. So in terms of entertainment, where your distractions are, cable is losing, movie theaters are losing, despite a few uh, sort of outliers like Marvel. And that whole media infrastructure is just dying. It's dying a slow death. That's what makes it sort of frustrating, right? It's not a clear break. It's just every quarter, there's just fewer people paying for television, fewer people going to movie theaters. And guys like Rupert Murdoch are like, what the hell? Right. So him selling out as surprising as it was for a lot of Murdoch watchers, just from a rational perspective, it like made complete sense. And that was actually almost directly referenced in this episode when Logan Roy gets his family around the table and says, like, we can sell that, you know, his his great adversaries, this guy, Sandy, like he's overpaying for Royco Waster. We will get 10 billion dollars if we sell right now and that's clearly setting up at some point well what's know, great about to go to zero so there's point. a great detail that's a great detail 10 billion guess what what did the murdoch family get out of that disney sale they got 12 billion right so <laughs> it was sort of like this perfect like if you really want to read deeply into it like yeah that's exactly that situation here's the thing though as we saw at the end of episode one what was a resolution? Like, screw it. We're going to stick with this. So it departs from reality in that really specific moment because where he goes. Honestly, if he just decides to sell at the end of episode one, there we're is done. no season. Yeah, we're over, right? Like this, so it's it's a clear departure from what's happened in real life, but it's done in a, in a smart way where they acknowledge that what's going on in the world, right? That's what's so smartly done about that. God, it looks terrible. It's like a sweaty corpse. Yeah. It looks waxy like an unshaven candle uh but i mean um you know the long and the short of it is i saw their plan and my dad's plan was better apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So before we get to the end, we should say where Kendall went. We should talk about his TV appearance briefly, if not to just mention his talking point, which comes up several times over oh my the God, course of the episode. Oh my God, it's so awesome. He gets past a little like four by six card in the back of mm-hmm. his car in Iceland. And what does the card say, Emily? I saw their plan and my dad's plan was better. Um, <laughs> Which and that's is, the key point. He repeats he that be- like to everybody like he's this automaton, right? Like to his <laughs> Everyone his family, wants to know, why like, did you right? back out? He can't say the truth, which is like, oh, I accidentally did a murder and you know, it would be a good idea for me. And my dad covered it up for me. So I can't so now I owe him everything. Anymore. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm basically his bitch. And so there, I can't do anything. So that's yeah, why I can't say any of that. So he just says, I saw their plan and my dad's plan was better. I think he says it at least three times. He says he it does. on TV. And that woman, his who is she? The PR she's woman. A communica- she's a communications person. She's like she heads up. Yeah, she's sort she- of like this very ancillary character, but just present enough that like. It's this believable structure of like a this big, you know, corporate behemoth that has all these different factotums going around. So yeah. she's that. And there are all these people around that sort of know more and that are just smarter, obviously, than any of the Roy's that sort of know are competent, actually, you know, that layer beneath them. Right. There's the Colin, the body man who basically helps cover up Kendall's crime. You know, he and these, these CEOs, the guys like Murdoch have body men. They've got like these like sort of people who work for them, security for like mm-hmm. years and years and years. I'm not saying they're doing cover-ups like that. I'm just saying like they're <laughs> that not, close. Not saying that. <laughs> they're not, not saying that either, but that that's an essential part of like this whole, the mythos around these families and how they operate. Yeah. And I want to get into that too, because the way Logan Roy talks to his son, Kendall, about the, the like little murder thing he did, it just really seems like he has so much empathy for him. And I know that's strategic, but I also wonder like, has he killed anyone maybe? This is my question for you, Emily. In season one, famously, well, famously to me, I'm not sure how many other people picked up on this, Logan Roy goes swimming in a pool and you see that there's a whole bunch of, like, scars on his back. Ooh. And I was like, wow. And that's clearly going to, you know, it's going to mean something later. It's going to mean something at some point. The first thing I thought of when I saw those scars on Logan Roy's back was actually Sumner Redstone hanging off the ledge, the ledge of the, of the hotel, hotel right. in, in so Boston. Sumner famously survived this hotel fire where he was, you know, oh. gripping like, and he was already an elderly man. He was in the sixties, and he was there's a hotel fire. He went to the window, he opened it up, and he sort of hung off the ledge of the window for like a long time, apparently, until the the fire trucks came and, and rescued suffered, him. Suffered dreadful burns. He was in the hotel room with his mistress, which just makes it even better. Ooh. Right, and his hand had turned into a claw. Like he could, he there was some part of his hand he can't really use ever for you know after that that moment but yeah logan roy definitely has a moment like that or more in his background that i'm hoping that at some point we we get more of a taste of because there is that one scene where he tells his son it's natural that you're going to think about what happened but you you just can't think about it you can't think about it very much like you got to put that to the side and it's clear kendall really can't do that and he's just going to take the drugs and it sounds like the dad is speaking from some kind of experience right yes i've been there son yeah yes yes it's all very dark I, I need to geek out just a little bit about this episode on the very, very small little stock price subplot because 
in season one, there was a whole bunch of people worrying about the share price and worrying that it was going to go too low. And if it went below a certain level, then that would cause a whole bunch of chaos to the capital stack and the balance sheet and blah, 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 blah. And the loans that I have some Logan issues with that, by the way. took out against his stock and all of this stuff. And so people were worried about the share price being too low. You come in season two, episode one, and everyone is worried about the stock price for the opposite reason. They're worried that it's too high. And Logan actually goes up to Kendall, his son, and gives him an instruction to, quote, pour a bucket of cold shit on the bid. That's on my list. (laughs) Pour me some buckets of cold shit on the bid, all right? And, like, the idea is people judge the success of Kendall's television appearance based on if he was successful, then the share price would have gone down and they're like well it went down for a minute and then it went back up again and so he wasn't successful and the point of course is that the bid that he's fighting off is at a high price and so if the share price goes up towards the bid price that means people think that the bid is going to happen if the share price falls down below the bid price that means they think that logan roy is going to win so it's we're in this weird sort of bizarro world where everyone in the company wants the share price to be low What's great also is they never explain it. They never get into like, here's why. Like, you know, mostly there's all this exposition when you see some kind of a movie or, or a TV show. This is just like, no, we're not going to explain it. All you have to do is read the emotions on their faces that like, yeah, this sucked, right? So like, but that's a great geeky moment. And I think, you know, for listeners who care about that stuff, you know, that sort of risk arbitrage, right? Whenever a deal is announced or a deal is in play between two companies, uh, you know, there are investors who make bets. They're like, you know, I think this deal is going to happen or it's not going to happen. And the, and the price goes up or down accordingly. That's another great one. I think this second season really, really crackles with like business sophistication. It does a really, really good job. Harkening back to the the first season that you mentioned, I did have an issue with that whole the MacGuffin in the first season, which was like, oh, my God, like he's in the hospital and like you need to take over. I have to tell you something. There's a debt situation that no one knows about. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> Here's the thing, though, is that historically that kind of stuff does happen. There was an example with the National Amusement, Sumner Redstone's parent company, right, that owned CBS and Viacom, where he took out loans. The parent company took out loans against the price of CBS and Viacom, and he kind of hit it. And so when investors found out, they're like, what the fuck? And so he's like, no, it'll be fine. Don't worry. So that scenario has happened. The thing that didn't quite ring true from the fictionalized version is that somehow the debt exists on the public company's books. We're getting really geeky here. That would (laughs) never happen. You would never happen in real life like that. If anything, it would have been better if like the debt holders actually owned the shares or holding on to them. And like they had a covenant to sell at a certain price, which if they did, like the family would start to lose control. Although there was a great phone call in the first season where like they're on the phone, where Kendall's, is it Kendall? I think it's Kendall. He's trying to negotiate. And the banker's like, Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have your nuts in advice. I can do whatever you want. You can't talk yourself out of this. And Ken, this is like a running theme, I think, in the whole show, is Kendall like really wants to be tough and he can act tough, but like no one takes him seriously. The setup is also sort of like, as much as you might sort of despise the dad for whatever reason, shareholders believe in him. You know, that's what they're buying into the him as much as the fundamentals of the company. And like when there's a moment where Ken takes over, there's this sort of, I don't know who is this kid? Do I trust him? Is he going to be a good leader? And I think that sort of reverberates through the whole season, which is like, are the kids good enough, not just in the eyes of the dad, but like in the eyes of the world? I mean, the kids are terrible. I think yeah, the next right. scene that we need to talk about is the set piece of this episode. Yeah. So this is an Armando Iannucci 
DNA show, which yes. means that every single character is terrible. So like that that just <laughs> kind of goes without saying. But yeah, if you're if you're talking about what I think you're talking about, Emily, the best scene I think that Succession has ever done is the scene between Logan and Siobhan in the summer house in the Hamptons. This is the moment. Let's talk about how we get to that moment. So they all go out to the Hamptons, to the summer ha- palace or the shit pit, as I think um, <laughs> Roman calls it. And when they get there, you know, it's just this like, what's great about Succession is, you know, it's like this kind of, it's wealth porn, but it's all kind of twisted and ugly looking. So, you know, you have this like beautiful, I think at one point, Logan says it's like a $200 million house or something. And it's really beautiful. And you see everyone like unloading these gigantic steaks and these lobsters. And then everyone who walks into the mansion is like, oh, what's that smell? Right. And then the smell turns out to be literally a bag of raccoons. Wait, wait, up wait. Can I mention like chimney? another great line from the episode <laughs> where Logan walks in to the to the house and he says, it smells like the cheesemonger died and left his dick in the brie. <laughs> Yes, that was on my list, Felix. It's the bag of raccoons. There's a bag of raccoons stuffed up the chimney. (laughs) So, and that kind of hangs over everything. And then when they finally find the raccoons, Logan then makes them throw out all the beautiful food because it sat in the stink. And then there's this shot where Kendall is smoking outside and then behind him are all these, you know, waitstaff throwing out lobster, steak, shrimp. It's just like disgusting. And they're getting right? pizza. They're getting pizza to because yes. he's like, "Fuck this shit! I just want pizza." And then Siobhan is <laughs> and no walking one eats into anything. The, as is Siobhan and Roman start walking into the dining room and then talking about what's going to happen, and Siobhan's like, "Oh, maybe we kill and eat Kendall as a pizza topping." <laughs> <laughs> That was great. Yeah, but no one eats even a bite of the food, which I thought was hilarious. Like there's all this attention and money spent on all this food. It gets thrown away. They replace it with more stuff. No one eats any of it because no one actually cares about what money can buy. They just want to, they just doing power plays with each other and nothing else even matters. Like all this wealth is for nothing. They're afraid to eat and they're afraid to talk, right? That's the whole point of that. He gathers him around. He's like, what do you think I should do? Should I sell? Because he's responding to his bankers sort of urging him, look, you should just sell. Like, the smart play is to sell. And it's a serious, it's a. It's not just some kind of political moment. It's like an actual, here's what's happening in the real world. If you, you don't sell about. now, then your company is going to be worth much less in four or five years' time. So the smart move is to sell now. Exactly. And so he he's earnestly asking the kids and the, the few executives in the room, what should I do? And no one wants to t- tell them what they really think because they're all afraid of him, right? Because there's this line for a moment where he's like, I like money and I'm afraid of you. <laughs> like, this is all he said. And I'm like, that's it. That's exactly everything. That's the whole show. And so then we get to the point where he has this sort of one-on-one with the kids, right? To see like where yes. we're getting to this moment now. Like, well, fine. If we're going to stick with it, How do we do that? Right. And so succession is a part of that question. And so, yeah. And so, like, he he decides, first of all, he brings in Roman, who acts, you know, in classic Roman fashion, like talking about a bunch of words, which he doesn't really know what they mean, but like, you know, sounding vaguely, desperately trying to sound like he has a clue what business his dad is in. Roman leaves. In comes Siobhan, and there's this unbelievable sort of game of cat and mouse between Logan and Siobhan, where Logan basically calls her bluff by threatening to tweet. And this <laughs> yes. is this is the other thing which I love about this episode is the or this season even is I think they're going to start making tiny little nods at the Trump 
Power Oh, yes. It was very Trumpy episode. There's a scene where Logan Roy kind of he stiffs the contractor. That is out of Donald Trump's playbook 100% where he says, I'm only going to pay you 100000 but he owes Absolutely more than twice 000. that much. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, just sue me. My lawyers work for the Justice Department. That was completely <laughs> Who do your Trumpian. lawyers work for? Right. Yes. Um, and the tweet thing is both a reference to Trump and also Elon Musk, right? Who like, <laughs> yes. like he's famous for, you know, he's, he basically got himself in a hot water. Like he actually had to, you know, pay a fine for tweeting things that weren't quite true. <laughs> so, but yeah, so Siobhan basically says, yeah, sell, you know, honestly, just do it, just sell. And he's like, okay. And he's like, if you don't want to take over, I'm going to sell. And then you there's... could see this moment where she's yeah. just like, no, don't do it. It's this great, great mm-hmm. emotional moment where you could see it in her eyes where she's like, man, shit, I want this. I do what I want. And what I've decided I'd like to do is to formally ask you to come in and be the next chief executive of this company. I don't think I'm the right person. Well, you know, I'm pretty smart, and I think you are. You are, Shiv. You're the one. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sarah Snook is the actor who plays Siobhan. Aussie. She's an Aussie. She's amazing. I think she's the arguably the best actor on the show. She's so good. She's the most compelling character for sure because she's both awful but human, right? <laughs> right. And is sort of the one you relate to the most in the sense that like, oh, you kind of, you get where she's coming from and she seems more or less down to earth. With the only exception of the one question which everyone has about Siobhan, it's like, why did she marry that guy? (laughs) (laughs) She's the only, she's the only sibling that appears to be intelligent and knows what she's doing and competent at all. So when he says she's the natural successor, it's actually pretty believable. You're like, of course she is. Who else could it literally be? She's also the only sibling who has ever had a job for anyone other than yes. Logan Roy. So Yes, that, exactly. Talking about real world sort of muses or examples, I mean, Elizabeth Murdoch, who right. is the, the daughter of, of Rupert Murdoch, for years and years and years, media observers were always sort of playing this guessing game, like who's going who's gonna to win that one? And she was always sort of put forth as she's the one most like her dad in that the smartest, the most capable, also did not work for her dad for the longest time, also worked at, you know, sort of in politics and sort of on a PR level. Well, she, she was famously married to Matthew Freud, who was like PR the, guy the king London, of PR in the right. UK. So he's... Um, Wasn't he like dopey like the way Tom Wamsgams is dopey? Is that an over... No, 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 no. Matthew Freud is not dopey. He's definitely a power player. Like he's not... Okay. You know, I think it's just sort of this sort of funny character. I think the guy who plays him is so brilliant. It's just so... It's Matthew McFadden? Oh my God. It's just... He's so like awful in this kind of obsequious way that you're just like, oh, yeah, no, like, but like Yeah, so Tom is definitely a character out of Veep. He's yeah. one of those like caricature characters who's great for comic relief and for bringing a bunch of just sheer entertainment value into the show and like he's the guy who he's wonderfully up, like, craven. swallowing like... his own <laughs> semen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, but the way they get him into the show is by getting him to marry Siobhan and that bit just doesn't really ring true 
It doesn't, but it's also kind of like he's such a known quantity to her that she knows she can control and that they have this open marriage and everything. I think it feels like, you know, it's more of a control move than it is. I love this man kind of a thing. So, yeah, knows? I think I mean, she she wants someone she can actually have power over. Like she's exactly. so clearly in the pole position and uh, he doesn't mind. But, well, he does you know, mind. I mean, this he, is no. Well, he's, he's not. Like, he he, want, he, he cares, genuinely he, cares, he genuinely yeah. thinks that he is in line to become CEO. Right. Like <laughs> like yeah, somewhere in that like mush of a brain of his is like this tiny little glimmer of ambition, saying, "I want to be the CEO of of Roystar Waco." And like anyone with the slightest glimmer of self awareness would know that was like zero possibility. But he he's so delusional, so delusional. But also because Siobhan herself sort of. You know, she's playing up to him, too, a little bit. She has throughout the whole first season, and you can see it in the season one, up until that moment, that scene with her and her dad, where she's, like, on the verge of tears, like, wait a minute, I think I want it. But she doesn't want to want it. That's the thing. You could see it in her face. It's like, why do I want to want this kind of a thing? Oh, can I also mention my other favorite little (laughs) grace note about this episode and about Tom in particular? When the episode begins, Tom and Siobhan are on their honeymoon on their, like, 250-foot yacht in some, like, glamorous location or something and the only people we ever see on this yacht is Siobhan and Tom and yes and Tom in is the beginning w- the first scene the the curtains are drawn they're like on this boat this beautiful view of the sea and, and they have the, the curtain, curtains drawn and, the and they're like trying to watch trying to trying yes. to watch Kendall on the iPad and she's <laughs> like so we've got pathetic. very bad wi-fi Shitty because wifi. we literally uh-huh. we tried to go somewhere with bad wi-fi but the thing which struck me about that scene is that Tom on his honeymoon on a yacht in the middle of nowhere which doesn't even have wi-fi is wearing an absolutely immaculate seersucker suit yes <laughs> You know something about seersucker, right? Come on. I know, Felix. You you have a whole whole rack of seersucker suits. And you're like, come on. Like, you know, seersucker suits are what you wear, like, in cities in the summer, not on a yacht. They're not yachting wear. (laughs) For Christ's sake, Tom. But he's from, like, Ohio, like, middle class, like Tom, who, like, you know, this is this how you do it? You know, (laughs) like, you know, he's this out, like, this outrageous Aravis type who's just like, this is, you know, uh, this is the role we play, right? Right. Exactly. So, yeah, so so Siobhan finally allows herself to admit that she really wants to be the CEO. She accepts Logan's offer. She's like, is this real? She asks him, is this real? Like 18 times. Mm-hmm. He's like, this is real. He's like, remember the slant of the light. This is the moment. And that's like the emotional heart of the episode. And it's just an absolutely beautifully shot and directed and acted scene. I love that scene. I think that scene really makes it and it makes you want more. And I think you kind of get the sense that like, you don't even believe it fully. You're so you're just like he's gonna dangle this. He's gonna do. Th- he's gonna. He's gonna. She comes. She comes this whole out, thing. and the first thing she says to her husband, "Oh, it's like Logan Roy mind games." Like even she, on some level, doesn't really believe it. Right. Exactly. But that was. I mean, the do you one... guys believe it? I don't believe it. I don't believe it either. I, if anything, no. it's like also come on. We need more show, right? There has to be. Yeah. <laughs> there has to be this possibility. If he fucks her over, he fucks over the kids. He does the whole thing. Right. But on some level, if you're Logan Roy. You know that the sensible thing to do is to sell, but you're Logan Roy, so you can't sell. And also, you have an entire season to fill, so you can't sell. <laughs> um, you, he is smart. Like He is in full possession of all of his faculties at the beginning of the season. There's none of this whole, like, he's a you know vegetable kind of like having a stroke stuff. He is very smart. He's in control of everything. And he knows that Siobhan is 
of all of his children, the only one who couldn't credibly take over the company. And she, yeah. she's believable that way, too, because the way she talks about the business, you're like, wow, she really knows what she's talking about. She has. And in fact, that in that moment, in that scene where he asks her, what would you do? And she lays it all out. I'm like, that's exactly right. You know, it's almost like, you know, if you were in that real business, those are the steps you would take. And the big difference between what she wants to do and what Roman wants to do <laughs> is that she <laughs> wants to get rid of the news operation. She says it's a distraction, it's noise, it's a pain in the ass, and like, like, let's just kill news, go big on like theme parks and blockbusters, kill like indie films and everything that isn't massive. That's exactly right. Makes right now, sense. that's what Roman. Meanwhile, when he comes in, he's like, we double down on news because that's where all of our political <laughs> power comes from. And it's an interesting difference between them two. Like, I feel like Logan ultimately is always going to want to be an important player. And therefore, he's going to want to keep the news operation. This, of course, is a direct... That's Murdoch. Murdoch. That is Murdoch. very Murdoch. Murdoch yeah. talks yeah. to Trump every day on the phone. And the reason he talks to Trump every day on the phone is not because he's a media billionaire. It's because he owns Fox, Fox News. News. Right. And so I think that's right. that's the one thing. What's interesting is that Murdoch, you know, since we're using him as, as a primer for a lot of this, if you look closely, he's actually very unsentimental. He's a very, very sort of rigorous business mind. The only time he becomes sentimental is when it comes to news. He can't not own that. That's the one thing that, like, he'll pay for. He'll just own it and eat it because... He'll pay $5 billion to the Wall Street Journal. And then write off half of it a year year (laughs) later, or he'll continue to fund the New York Post at a $40 million annual loss just because he needs to have it, right? Right. It's not clear how far that parallel is going to go. Like, that difference, sell news or keep news, it's not clear to me which side Logan will be on. But before he gets anywhere near that, he needs to, first of all, have this big fight with Sandy. Sandy Furness. So I'm curious so what you guys think. So who's Sandy? I have, yeah. All right. I, All right. I think I, I have an idea who Sandy Furness is. Who's Sandy? Sandy Furness is John Malone. Oh, my God. I was totally going to say that. Yes. He's John Malone. <laughs> so for listeners who may not know or care, but you should care, John Malone basically invented the cable industry in the United States and is probably the most feared media executive on the planet. Al Gore once referred to him as Darth Vader. Like <laughs> That's how. And there is a historical truth around this where there's a moment around early 2000s where he was quietly buying up shares of News Corp, Rupert Murdoch's company, to the point where he actually threatened Murdoch's ownership stake over the controlling stake over the business. And Murdoch didn't know this was happening. It was till it's too late. What Malone was trying to do, and there's a there's a phrase in the first episode that you might have heard, asset swap, right? That's sort of an right. interesting And, and the of, asset swap is exactly what Murdoch what and Malone did. did. Where basically Malone said, you know what? I'll sell you your shares back, but I want direct TV, which Murdoch had a significant stake in. Murdoch was trying to turn... You know, he he owned or once upon a time owned Sky in the UK, which is a satellite TV service there. He tried to replicate that idea in the US through DirecTV. Took a little bit longer. Malone spoiled his plans and they did this great asset swap where basically Malone got control of DirecTV and then Murdoch was able to buy his shares back. And afterwards, like Murdoch learned his lesson, like he put in a poison pill in the company charter where you couldn't do that anymore. No, but there are these like grand figures of darkness like John Malone, to a certain extent, maybe Charlie Ergen as well. And yeah, he's everyone is sort of like a mixture of characters, but I think right. the closest for Sandy Furness is John Malone. And then the way that that first episode ends where, you know, where Kendall comes in to deliver the message, 
This is one of my, I have a whole list of these. My, one of my favorite lines. It comes at the very end where he's just delivering this message, but he does it in a way that's sort of properly done. You know, he aims to kill you. He's talking about Logan to Sandy. He said, he will go bankrupt or go to jail before he lets you beat him. He will send men to kill your pets and fuck your wives and it will never be over. Yeah. So that's the message. <laughs> right? And, you're just like, and, and Sandy Furness goes, let's get on with that process. Then. Right? Yes. Like, yes. And that's how, that's how it should ends. work. Right? Yeah. <laughs> So well done. It's a, so it's well a done. great final line. Yeah, it really is. I, I think I really give the writers credit because I think, especially in this first episode, there's so many great details, like financial, the, arc, the arcana of like how financial deals work and boardroom procedures that like they, they really nailed it, but they also depart far enough from reality that like it's this escape, that it's this fun thing that like, yes, you would like it to happen that way, kind of a thing. He wanted me to tell you to say, yeah, obviously our public line will be that we are considering the offer, but it doesn't matter what you offer. He'll never recommend this to the board. You're going to bleed cash. He's going to bleed cash. It will never end. And maybe you'll kill him. But if you don't, he aims to kill you. He will go bankrupt or go to jail before he lets you beat him. He will kill you on the business. And if that doesn't work, he will send people around. He will send men to kill your pets and fuck your wives and it will never be over. So that's the message. Good. Well, let's move ahead with that process, shall we? Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camped here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. So that was episode one. Yeah, uh, well like, done. We have nine more to go. This is going to be a, a roller coaster. I'm absolutely sure. Let's just end this with our one favorite line from the whole show. Emily, what was your one favorite line from the whole show? Oh, this is so hard. I have so many written down. <laughs> I'm going to go with Greg, cousin Greg, who we didn't really talk about very much, but he's in Kendall's apartment. He's looking around and to Greg's <laughs> eyes. This is an amazing, amazing apartment to my eyes as well. And then he compliments it. And Kendall's like, yeah, I couldn't get anything better. It's fashion week. All the good penthouses are taken. But the line I really liked. <laughs> the all really the good, liked yeah, there are good Greg penthouses saying, and there are shit right. penthouses. Yeah. Yeah. He said, oh, oh, yeah, it, it could be way better. I, I, I just don't know how. <laughs> Which to me is, says everything about these rich is people. Great, they, don't, yes. they don't see it. Yeah. <laughs> if I need to come up with a line we haven't mentioned, I'll say when Kendall goes into the meeting with Sandy and then says that his dad isn't coming in because he oh, has to Oh, I know what you're going to say. And, then, and then good, this great line. He had, he had to, to take a call. That's like a 1987 power move. Dude. <laughs> Stewie. That was on my Stewie list, too. great lines. That was on my list. 1987. And it's so true. And it, it is true. Like, we, at the end of season one, there's this scene where Logan is, like, keeping the president of the United States on hold. And it's just like, he does have this 1987 power move thing, which he can't quite become part of the... 21st century. But that's exactly what Trump does, too. You know, he, he like, still <laughs> plays that old power book, but that's exactly... I'm going to follow that up. My favorite line, if I had to pick one, there's so many, there's so many, but it's in that same scene where, 
again, there's this great human moment where this is the guy, the private equity guy who is friends with Kendall, who like when they first set this up, the guy who's standing in front of the Sandy Furness character. Stewie. And he's like, dude, I'm a human, I'm a human being here. If you need a human being, I'm here for you. Just what is going on? Right. There's this moment of like, you could talk to me, dude. And you know, it's like, well, I looked at the plan and my dad's plan is better than you <laughs> kind of thing. And he goes, fuck you. And he goes, fuck you too, you pulsomaneous piece of fool's gold, fucking silver spoon, fucking asshole. Right. It's like, <laughs> that, like okay, like that's it. Yeah. There's no and, and but and, and personally, I am always going to be a fan of any. TV show which uses the word pusillanimous. Oh, because absolutely. pusillanimous yeah. is one of my favorite words. <laughs> right there in that first episode. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it's right there in episode one. So thanks for staying with us through the episode one recap. We will be back, same time, same channel, next week with episode two. And thanks very much for listening to Slate Money Extra. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.